So good evening, everyone. I've been very excited to speak to you. Even though as I ran into Leela walking up the path earlier, I, I said that um, I don't have a talk. <laughs> but she just said to, um, to sing, sing the talk. <laughs> and the, coincidentally, she may not know this, but all afternoon, it's been floating through my mind and it's, it's a song that floats through my mind a lot uh, are the words of Bob Marley um, from Redemption Song uh, where he says, uh, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. And uh, I, at the risk of some cultural appropriation, I've, I've been, I looked into that song a little bit and found that the inspiration, I did this a couple of years ago, but I found that the inspiration was uh, from a, a uh, African-American, uh, um, African nationalist called Marcus Garvey, who many of you know of, who, who really gave uh, a lot of hope to the African-American community, encouraging their uh, deeper connection with Africa and really taking on kind of reclaiming that, uh, that ancestry. And this was his quote that inspired that song. We are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because whilst others might free the body, none but ourselves can free, our, free the mind. Mind is your only sovereign, ruler, the man who is not able, who's not able to develop and use his mind is bound to be the slave of the other man who uses his mind. So, and I, when I reflected on this, I also reflected on, somebody mentioned, I think maybe, so Wazi mentioned, um, Who's the one who wrote Man's Search for Meaning? Victor Frankl, Frankl, who who incarcerated during the Holocaust. uh, And he wrote his Man's Search for Meaning on a, I think on his hand or on some little pieces of paper. And the the heart of it was that uh, they could incarcerate him, but they couldn't take away the freedom in his mind. And all of the different wisdom traditions, at least my song of, of uh, freedom, is uh, of course because we're sitting and we're in the context of, the, um, of a, um, a Buddha-inspired meditation center, although mixed with our, our, our um, culture, etc. But uh, it's a, it seems appropriate that, that we really look continue to look more um, carefully at uh, the Buddha's song of freedom. You know, it, it, is, it is true, I've, I've seen it in different traditions, that when a person awakens, when their mind, when their heart opens and they move beyond some limited view of themselves into a, a wider a wider perspective on life, 
often there is this spontaneous urge to write a poem, uh, sing a song, um, do some, something that expresses that, uh, that, you could say, that cry of freedom, that, um, that song of freedom. And in the Buddha's case, and who knows what has been lost in translation and how much of it has been just a composite of many different things that he said, but he is said to have sung upon his awakening these beautiful words that I think I would like to deconstruct a little bit tonight and play with. Um, Part of not having a talk is that... uh, (laughs) Part of not having a talk is that I used to... And I think this is relevant to the content of the talk tonight. I used to be hyper self-conscious when, you know, this is now my 35th year of trying to do this. <laughs> and I used to be hyper self-conscious and, uh, and concerned about being prepared. And sl- slowly through the years, and I think it's partly because of the uh, the study of the very topic that we'll be talking about, otherwise known as ego, self-view, identity, non-self, because of the, my shifting understanding both experientially and philosophically, etc., the way that the teaching has evolved is to being much more improvisational. And improvisational obviously sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But I, I assume that you will forgive me if it doesn't work. And I, I rest on the, uh, the general good, uh, good intentions that, that I bring and, and your goodwill as well. But I won't, um, no matter how you react, it's okay. <laughs> so the Buddha... I'll just back up and tell a little bit of the story and maybe that will create a context for this song of, of freedom. But many of you have probably read the story of the Buddha and, and there's so many elements of it that at least the ones I'd like to highlight are the ones that are relevant to what you're actually doing here. Why do we sit? Why is the sitting and the stillness such a part of the, his particular doorway to freedom? And, and what can we discover in a way that's maybe a little bit di- more difficult when we're, when we're flapping our arms so much and moving around so much and, and in what would be, I guess, the number one way that, to characterize us and sometimes the way that we tend to characterize ourselves. In other words, the, our number one, maybe our identity is, what would you say? It's busy. You know, the, an editorial I often share on retreat from a, a recently deceased writer named Amy Krauss Rosenthal. Uh, it was called Sweet Nothing, where she says, how are you? And the answer is busy. How is your week? Good, busy. She says, you name the question, busy's the answer. She says, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but more often than not, busy is the most simple knee-jerk reaction. She said, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen and women think they were busy too? This week is crazy. (laughs) 
I have about 10 caves to draw on. Can I, can I meet you by the fire next week? And she goes on to say that, 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 uh, that well, her attribution is to, because of the advent of coffee bars and coffee's luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. So that's a lot of our identity, you know, and we're moving fast, we're absorbed in our, our um, devices, and, and we're busy, and feeling really, in some ways, the busier, the, the more pumped up. And it's not exactly a recipe for seeing clearly for oneself into the nature of reality. To, to have the understanding of rea- reality, at least in the meditative way, be, um, be direct, not, not um, second-hand, not because you read the suttas, the sutras, the teachings, that you read them head to toe, you know, if you, you could read, reading the sutras could have an enormous impact on your heart and mind, understanding all the teachings intellectually. But ultimately, until you stop, keep quiet, look within, it is, as you've probably heard before, the metaphor uses, it's like you have read all the menus, but you haven't tasted the food. Now, how could you put, how could you put what you're experiencing right this moment? Minus the word moment. How would you put that into words? Direct experience is not so easy to put into words, but yet we know it immediately, directly. And all of our moving and going sometimes deprives us, unless we are really carrying with us that sense of of aware presence. Then, whether you're, as the Buddha suggested, whether you're sitting or standing, lying down or moving to and fro, uh, you are available to and can experience life. Not the idea of life, but the direct experience. But so much of our lives, innocently, we rely on second-hand information. So you've given yourself the gift of direct experience here. And not unlike the Buddha. He was, he was busy accumulating, as we do, our culture is really bound up in this, he was busy accumulating experiences. Music, dance, all the wonderful things of life that bring a lot of pleasure. And that remind us of the extraordinary capacity of our senses. These amazing senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, which no one could ever explain either. Just the the capacity to see 
And then to, to translate what's being seen into what these light and these objects, these forms, to translate it into language that we can then communicate with each other. How amazing is that? There's a, a Tibetan word that's often used called emaho. How amazing. And one of the things, I'll just digress a little bit, one of the things that always strikes me, in fact, Kate spoke of it the first night, the first day after a day of practice, she says, so much, didn't you say something like, so much has happened today? Something like that. Now, it's amazing how not one of us over the course of the day ever left the present moment we were always, we've just been experiencing this entire day, no matter where you are, whether you're eating or whether you're walking, whether you're sitting, whether you're, you're in your room, or you're just experiencing unfolding present moments. Nobody's ever in their entire life left the present moment. That's all there is. It's an unfolding present. Of course, in our imagination, we have gone... We've gone everywhere. Huge dramas have unfolded. Yet in that fundamental way, nothing's happened. Here we are. How amazing is that? But that's, that's phenomenal. How our mind, very simply being here, your mind and body, you couldn't even have an experience unless there was, unless, it depends on this, what the Buddha called this fathom long body. He said this is, within this fathom long body, we experience the whole world. You never, never leave here really. But it's also within this fathom long body that we experience, and this gets back to Salwazi's talk last night, the state of craving, this, within this body and its senses and perceptions and what happens is we, it's the cause of the world. We just keep creating worlds over and over again. Many of them imaginary. You could say that most of what goes through your mind over the course of the day is the imaginary version of yourself. Somebody that doesn't really exist in truth. It's kind of a, a, a virtual version. And if we're present, knowing that this virtual version is playing, how amazing is that to be able to make a shift from simply being carried along by that and believing that it actually describes the real you. To be able to see, oh, that's the the story of you. And how amazing is that story? Another amazing thing is how that story that plays through our mind, even though it's a, it's a narrative version, it's an approximation of what's sitting here. It's not so easy to put in words. That story is made up of everything that has ever happened to you. And everything that's ever happened to you 
is uh, what you could call, uh, it's two things. It's both personal and non-personal. Personal in the sense of what's happened to you is not the same as what's happened to me. And that reminds us that we each are an individual, a unique expression of life. The the Buddha was clearly an individual, a unique expression of life, formed by everything that ever happened to him. I was really struck last night and the night before how, how both Kate and Sol Wazi both of them, I was, this is a pet interest of mine, and may, maybe, I don't know if this excites you, but both watching and listening to Kate, she has, she has what I call Kateness. <laughs> she is quintessentially Kate. This kind of, the way I think about her, I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Her being, her being smiles. It's like a, there's a kind of brightness. There's a, there's a, an a intelligence, a, a clarity, a playfulness, and it's not like anybody else that ever lived. Individual, unique, but yet you could also feel from Kate all the the ancestry, all the causes and condition that brought her into being, all that in her that is non-personal. So the Buddha never denied our individuality. He was right there with, he was tough, he was clear, he could defend the, the Dharma with the best of them. But he also, at the same time, said, recognized that his individuality was not just, did not just live in a vacuum. It didn't live as this, this thing apart from everything else. It was made up almost entirely with non-personal elements. All right, the example, what does that mean? Now just think of yourself for a moment. Body, made up of, we call it my body. But when you look more carefully at what you call your body, we can talk about it in terms of elements. It's made up of the elements of earth, air, earth, water, which you know, the, the earth depends on the water for solidity. Fire, the water depends on the fire for, for um, you know, if you if fire's too high, it, you know, liquefies. If it's too, it's not enough fire, it freezes. And then you lose your solidity in either case. And then the fire depends on the air. So we are this mix of air, earth, air, fire, water. Not particularly personal. Cannot find any, any place in this body that's strictly you. How do you feel when I say that? Seem pretty matter of fact. 
our moods, emotions, they're so much formed by our, our parents and our culture and our community and our uh, traditions. And, you know, I, I know that for me, I, am, I know that part of my ancestry is, is the Holocaust. And I, w- I do not exist independently apart from, from my, my, um, my ancestors. You know, I'm part of a, a thousands of year old diaspora that, of rejection and incarceration and, you know, just all kinds of things. My, I was thinking about it this afternoon, not trying to, to, um, to increase my bona fides about understanding the, the world of, of suffering, but I was thinking about my grandmother's town in, this, in um, Belarus, in what's now part of, um, what's now, it used to be called uh, White Russia, it's Belarus, part of the Soviet Union. Well, her town was called Shadrin, and during the uh, pogroms in the early 1900s, pogrom came into her town and they basically wiped it out. It doesn't exist anymore. You can't find it on a map or in history books, or it's just gone vanished. And that's just one little tip of the iceberg of this spreading of, of this search for safety. Now, that has to impact me some way. You know, and I, there are lots of theories about why do people who, who have been informed by the, the Jewish tradition, how do they end up being bujus? <laughs> <laughs> Jubus. <laughs> you know, part of, the, part of this, and it's not particularly personal, but part of the Jewish archetype, a kind of common conditioned phenomenon, is the, to be a learner. And, for example, after World War II, or perhaps any pogrom or any, any other kind of... Um, oppression that w- was dealt with, particularly after World War II, it wasn't exactly safe to be Jewish in this world. And in order to fulfill that, that, um, that archetypal patterning, to learn what seemed to be a very safe, uh, non, um, I want to say non-denominational, but non-sectarian, Tradition were the teachings of the Buddha. It wasn't really even a religion until the 19th century. It was a teaching. It's kind of that was a, more of a colonial creation where it got it got kind of Christianized, colonialized. But all of that that is part of the formation of this particular mind and body. It's not personal. It's not my fault. And the same is true as my friend Wes Nisker says, you are not your fault. <laughs> you have been formed in time by beginningless conditions. And one b- wonderful teacher named Nagarjuna said, really speaking of how this doorway of understanding 
our non-separateness is a doorway to understanding the selfless nature of our existence, the non-self element of your individuality. He said, you are not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend. So we're all contingent or dependent on all these causes and conditions. You are not the same, nor are you different than that which you depend. You are neither severed from, nor are you forever fused with those conditions. This is the deathless teaching for Buddhas who care for the world. I love the fact that he, Nagarjuna says, for Buddhas who care for the world. Because the more you widen that circle of understanding of yourself, you don't just look at yourself in a vacuum. Which of course, when you look at yourself in a vacuum as just I, as just me, as just mine, everything gets personalized. Everything, and that little narrative that goes in your mind of yourself gets, um, gets reinforced because of one little characteristic that the Buddha called wrong view or avijja, ignorance. That, that that little narrative, even though it's such an essential part of our humanity, of our individuality, that narrative and the being that it describes starts getting co-opted by this notion that that being is solid, existing independently apart from everything else. That we start to walk around this life completely innocently, but walking around this life thinking that we are, as the metaphor used in the Bhagavad Gita in the Hindu tradition is that we're, we're like a wave on the ocean, but we're the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. completely oblivious to the fact that we are completely immersed in the very thing we deeply long for is that sense of connection. And what does our, what does our discursive mind try to do out of love for ourselves? It tries to figure it out. How can I get that wave back to the ocean? And the harder we try, and this is what we find and our, when we try to figure it out, then our identity gets co-opted by the idea that you are not just this unexplainable, fantastic, unique expression of life, but you are primarily, because there's so much pain that comes with being so in your head, so to speak, disembodied, you begin to view yourself in some version of, well, several versions of, there's something wrong with me. But really, the composite identity is, I am a problem to be solved. So much of the energy is about solving, seeing our experience ourselves as a problem to be solved. So what we do in practice, just to come back a little bit to the immediate, is we, we cut through that, that problem-solving mind and we, instead, of, instead of relying on our rational mind to figure it out, we begin to open this, what we call, what's sometimes called satipanya, awareness wisdom. 
this intuitive awareness that uh, just takes in experience, that receives it, that doesn't figure it out, but yet at the same time, the more the, the dust of memory gets cleared of all of our confusion and our confused notions of ourselves, the more the dust clears, the more that intuitive awareness shows that it has a certain intelligence to it. And then those data points, I love that metaphor that you use, those data points of what we're experiencing moment to moment start, start lighting up in a way that our intuitive awareness operates on them and all of a sudden we have these, this understanding of ourselves as not as separate as we thought, nor as describable as that version of ourselves that plays in our minds is. That we are really, um, we are too amazing to describe. That we are, um, we are vast beyond our comprehension. We are wonderful beyond our comprehension. And I guess the shadow side of that is terrible. But we, but a sense of well-being is easier and closer than you think. And it is partly this view that plays through our mind of being a problem to be solved that prevents us from recognizing the natural well-being and happiness of being awake. I always like to experiment with just asking you, and you're much more, this is probably much more accessible to you at this phase in the retreat. Now that you're a little bit more intimate with your direct experience, and at least perhaps you can see the difference between what you're experiencing right now and the stories that play through your mind. You can really check, check out what is your experience after the last story has stopped and before the next one comes. Anybody willing to say? Heart opening. Heart opening. What else? Yeah. Now. Spacious. Spacious. Peaceful. Peaceful. Nothingness. Nothingness. Just curious. Any problems? Anything wrong with you? without consulting your memory? Intense. What's that? Intense. Intense. Life is intense. The other thing that dawned on me when I started to experience this a little bit more is that uh, it felt, it feels sometimes like, you know, in my absent-minded moments that it's mostly a story of lack that's running through my mind. Something, something's lacking. 
But then when I'm actually present, I can't find anything missing, anything lacking. Unless I remind myself, oh, I've, I've, this is my issue, or... <laughs> of course our issue is going to come back. That's part of our conditioning. But the beauty of practice is we can begin to relate to our issue instead of relating from our issue. That's the, the liberating leap. To me, it's the liberating leap in practice from being just carried along by the stream of our thoughts to noticing them. We don't de- delete them or get rid of them. We make this shift in relationship that is all made possible by this uh, ever-present capacity that we have to be intelligently awake. That we can actually see the difference between, I I always think of James J. Audubon where he says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. It's nice to know that, to have a few moments anyway, to know that at the, at the root of everything, there is, I think the expression used by somebody was that sense of, of basic goodness, kind of a ground, there's a ground of openness, just presence, simplicity. And when people described nothingness, emptiness, peace. I, that's not because we, I tricked you. I just, all we did for a moment was remove the field guidebook. The second-hand version of yourself. Beautiful as it is and important to honor and be in awe of it, but it can't capture. It can't quite capture the capacity that you have to be really free. To just reclaim your kateness or your sawaziness or your howiness or as I often talk about my daughter Molly, her molliness. She's the she was my guru on this. I watched her as a three-year-old. Just essential Molly. Yet I also started to see the way that the field guide book got created for her. She went to nursery school. And she saw two little girls. She had these little ringlet curls. She saw these two girls with blonde hair, blue eyes. And I saw her a few days later. She's three or four, and she's standing in front of the mirror trying to straighten her hair. So poignant, so painful. Already the beginning of the comparing mind. And if you begin to take the comparing mind to be who you are, it's always measuring. It's always saying, somebody's higher, somebody's lower, somebody's equal. And that's exhausting. There's no security in trying to keep up with differences. Honoring differences is a different story from the vantage point that that your needs have been met. 
that your happiness is not dependent on being above, below, or equal to. That's freedom. And that's a little bit about what the Buddha, what the Buddha realized. What that third noble truth, the cessation of this constant state of craving for something different, for craving for, as Sawazi beautifully spoke about, the four attachments, craving for, for um, sense pleasures, craving for, for views and opinions and the identity around them that gets us so bound up in, in continuing to have to move to keep up with somebody who has a different view or to reinforce our own or the, the craving for the clinging to uh, rites and rituals and doing things right and, the, and then this continual craving to perpetuate, solidify, to secure this view about ourselves, this narrative we call identity or ego. The Buddha called it Sakaya Ditti, self-view. And the understanding is that all of us have these different views of ourselves. And sometimes they're inflated views of yourself. Sometimes they're deflated views. Sometimes they're they're okay views. It's really a, I've been talking about this in the last few years, but being a a dad to a 15-year-old, now she's no longer three, but I've taught a couple retreats with with, um, Bonnie Durant in the last few years, and she talks about personality view a little bit and she calls the, the teacher, she says this inner uh, teacher, she calls herself the, the sage on the stage. And so here I'm the sage on the stage. But then, you know, so I can start, I can I get a lot of my narcissistic needs met, you know, people are nice. And, but then I go home. And in more recent times, and, you know, very typical of a 15-year-old, half the time she doesn't give me the time of day. And I've even asked her, you know, you could say good morning. She says, nobody does that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So the comparing mind just creates... um, a completely, speaking of, we went to the Buddha for refuge, the Dharma for refuge, it creates a completely unreliable refuge. There is no refuge to be found in a view about ourselves. And it may be that the only refuge is to be able to see those views of yourself, to make that shift and then to rest in that, in that, and trust that uh, that simple, natural state of knowing that a view of myself is not myself. It's a view, and to be to extend it even into the simple moments of our practice when you see anger arise. Just like that narrative comes unbidden in our mind, so do the moods come unbidden, based on our history, based on our conditioning. But those moods come, and sometimes we are 
I know that that people have been describing in the groups were irritated, were angry, were frustrated, were doubtful, were thought slothful. You know, it's the retreat has a certain pattern where, you know, one day you just hate everyone and and, and you're counting the days and then then you love everyone. Someone even this evening said, God, I wish this would, they'd close the gates and I could stay here forever. And that's often based on the changing conditions of our mind. But the, the awareness that knows that, the awareness of anger is not angry. It's unstuck from the dependency or the identification with that feeling. The, ang- the awareness of sad is not sad. It's not, oh, this is sadness. So this capacity to relate to our experience in a way, with understanding frees us from then being carried along unconsciously through the, the torments of our mind. <clears throat> so this is essentially what the, what the Buddha did. just backing up a little bit, he depended on experiences, collecting experiences, having a good time. And yet he, um, his identity around having the good, the better, the best did not give any sense of relief. In fact, he was just plagued. So this reminds me that, that everyone suffers differently. Now you could look at the Buddha on the surface and say, this, is, this guy was, was privileged. He had everything. It's not, not, not um, doesn't move you in the way that some, someone who is, uh, who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from or has to be afraid walking down the street or, but yet, he carried, as most of us do, some kind of existential angst, some longing to be happy, to, be, to, to have a sense of a reliable happiness. And everything he tried was leaving him in a, in a state of chronic dissatisfaction. Can you relate to that? And then his guru showed up. Who was his guru? His guru was impermanence. His guru was the, the, his eyes opening to the fact that, um, that everyone, everyone who is born dies. We've been discussing that already. Definition of birth, leading cause of death. Everybody who's born, definition of birth, leading cause of illness, leading cause of aging, if one's uh, fortunate enough. And that just kind of shattered his, his trance of seeking. And he saw, well, whatever I've, I've been so identified with, I take to be myself, my body, my, my experiences, Whatever I've been uh, and everything I, I have, everything that I seem to be seeking comes and goes. Where's the, where's the relief there? 
And then he saw that in the, in the continual going after, that there, that there is a momentary pleasure, as the poet Hafez says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that give you a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So there was really no, his whole life just kind of seemed really empty, unreliable. And the, we are the beneficiaries. We do not exist apart from, from that existential uh, angst that, that drove him to seek um, seek a more reliable refuge. And so he started practicing, did a lot of what we're doing here. He saw, he saw not only did he see sickness, old age, and death, but he saw examples of, of renunciation and simplicity, and he started practicing. And he very quickly developed a very strong sense of unification of mind and body, and he experienced the, a kind of well-being and happiness that seemed quite superior and more long-lasting than the fleeting uh, experiences of, of our ordinary wonderful pleasures. And thought he was really on to something, but then he also saw that those experiences, even the delicious meditative experiences, eventually faded away. But at that point, there was really no one to, to guide him to find a reliable refuge. But he decided to just give up going out and looking for teachers. And he just decided to stop. And he went under the Bodhi tree and sat there. And he said, I'm not going to get up until I find what I'm looking for, even if I die. that kind of rarest of desires, the desire to be free, that, uh, that is really the, the, the fruit of opening to dukkha. Dukkha, that's why dukkha, the opening to the unsatisfactoriness, the things that are hard to bear in life, becomes a cause for wanting to be free. So he sat and he sat and doing a lot of, he wrote, he, he worked up some of the, of the composure, but then he didn't get seduced by it because he, he, he didn't let the pleasure of it overtake him, felt it a lot. But instead he took the, he applied the strength that comes from having a steady mind and the brightness of it, the clarity of it, the luminosity of it, the capacity to reflect what's going on in our mind. Have you noticed your mind clear a lot since you've been here? That, there, that it gets much more bright just when, you're, when it's a little bit, a, just a little bit more free of its usual preoccupations. It gets quiet and bright. So one teacher said, then you, you start to sense that it's permeated with light and love that you've maybe never known, but you recognize it as your, as your, 
as the natural state of your mind. Anyway, so with that brightness, he started studying his mind and body. That which he had so identified with. And he saw that everything in this body that he called me and mine, he saw that it was in a, just like everything in the macro level, it was in a state of constant flux with no, no, nothing in that mind and body that could be, could be held onto and could even be described as me or mine. Anything you look at it would change. And then he saw the same with moods, saw the same with thoughts, and he was just assaulted by the hindrances, by all the, the, the versions of himself that were the, the, of unworthiness. Or, and he finally, he touched the, touched the earth, said the, the earth, you know, I, I deserve to be here, needed a little extra support. That's why, you know, a little bit of why we put our mind in our body, this body, even though it may be unreliable, it's it, uh, connecting with the elements, this back to nature, this coming out of the tangle of our imaginary life into a direct experience of life. It's in some ways analogous with putting our hand on the earth to feel your body. And so he, with greater confidence, he saw the rising and the fading of of thoughts. He saw there's no me, no mine in that, no me, no mine in the moods. He saw everything is changing and he saw that anything that was changing could not be clung to as I or mine or me. But an interesting thing happened. It didn't just create a view about that or an opinion about that. To see, to experience directly the arising and fading of things, the the non-selfness of it, the out-of-controlness of the mind and body, it had the effect of causing a kind of relaxing, a kind of letting go. Because you start to, he started to see the futility of trying to hold to anything as me or mine. And with that sense of letting go, he began to get a a flavor, the fragrance of a sense of freedom. Same stuff going through his mind as every day, but somehow untouched by it. Able to feel a sense of balance and open-heartedness and interest and ease, even when things were unpleasant. And the more he relaxed in that kind of natural openness, not creating a new view of himself, just being open, in a flash of insight, his mind kind of just really opened. And the dots all kind of came into that intuitive awareness, just naturally operated on what was going on. And in a flash of insight, he realized, the reliable refuge that I have been searching for is none other than the natural state of my own mind. That I don't have to lift out of this moment to be free.
And this is when he let out his song, and I'll end with his song. He said, because, you know, he had been going after one thing or another, been born into desires and losses and gains and praise and blame and all the winds had blown through his mind, all the comparing and all the analyzing, all the judging that comes with the identity view and taking everything personally. He said, through many births, in the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again in the same way. Your rafters are broken. That's all the defilements of the mind that make us think we're not okay. The ridgepole destroyed ignorance. The mind gone to the unconditioned. The deathless. To cravings cessation. To that constant state of obsession with what's next. To cessation of craving it has come. May we all realize the unconditioned. May we all experience moment by moment the joy of letting ourselves be and discovering our version of Kateness, Awaziness, Howiness, Leelaness, Ashliness, and whoever you are. <laughs> it doesn't need to be put into words. So let's just enjoy our suchness. Thank you so much for staying with this little meandering journey to the nature of the mind. Uh, We will have, instead of a 15-minute walking, we'll just have a 10-minute stretch, restrooms, uh, and then we'll have another sitting with with a little chanting and uh, put you to bed. Anyway, thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.